And today our scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. And it can be found on page 822 in the Pew Bible. And as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to just grab one of our Bibles and take it home as a gift from us today. We'd love for you to have one. All right, Matthew chapter 17, 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said, um, Peter said Jesus to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, and one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Carrie Lynn. And good morning. My name is Anthony Emerson, and I am one of the associate pastors here at Christ Community Brookside. Uh, Welcome to all of you. If this is your first time uh, here with us, thank you for being with us. We're glad that you're here. Um, I'd like to start our time this morning with a little bit of prayer, especially for those in Nice, France. Um, So we've had another... Uh, attack, terrorist attack. Um, I'd just like to go to the Lord in prayer about that, so would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you humbly. We all are sinners in need of your mercy and grace, which you have so freely offered to us in your Son. And I pray, Lord, that we would grow in trust and faith in you today. And Lord, there's a lot of other sinners in this world. Just in the past months, we've seen clear evidence of sinners being in Orlando, in Baton Rouge, in Minneapolis, in Dallas, and in Nice, France. We're tired, Lord, of the senseless violence, the innocent deaths, of waking up and checking the news and seeing a fresh headline of too many innocent people who've lost their lives. And just last Sunday, God, we prayed in particular for the rash of racial incidents in our country that led to multiple tragic deaths, and here we are again, praying once more. We ask, Lord, do you hear us? Do you hear our prayers to protect us? These are the kinds of questions that the psalmist brought before you, God, and we bring them to you as well, knowing that you can handle them. So we ask, Lord, why do you let suffering this permanent, this irreversible, this mindless happen? We ask, Lord, that you would hear our prayer, that you would answer from heaven. And we know you, Lord. You love the 84 who lost their lives in Nice infinitely more than we do. You care about the families of those who died more than all of us do put together. You are more committed to justice and righteousness than we ever will be. 
So we ask God that you would be present with the families who lost loved ones this past week. We ask that you would bring ISIS and other groups like it to justice, Lord. We ask that you would give wisdom to our leaders, to the leaders of France, and leaders dealing with terrorism around the world. And finally, Father, we ask that you would use this time in your word to make us more like your son, that you would use this time to change our hearts and minds and to transform them by the work of your spirit. We may be salt and light in the world. We give all the glory to you, you who are still working all things together for the good of those who love you. Amen. Well, in the midst of all of the death of recent weeks, the question before each of us this morning is this, are you ready to die like Jesus? Are you ready to die like Jesus? And what do we mean by that? If you were here last week, you might remember that we saw Jesus and how He planned and purposed way before it actually happened. He planned to sacrificially die on the cross, told His disciples this, and then He turned and told his disciples that they were going to do the same. They were going to die like him as well. He calls us to do the same. Maybe not to physically be martyred, but to die to ourselves, to sacrificially give up our own will and way and give in to Jesus' will and way. To give up all rights to have control over ourselves and our plans and our agendas, and to give into Christ and whatever He wants for us in our life. This is what we looked at last week. And that sort of sacrificial dying to self, being willing to die like Jesus, it's scary. It's probably going to be painful and uncomfortable. Jesus calls it losing your life in order to actually find it. But losing my life, dying to self, whatever the promised reward is on the other side, and there's great promises that Jesus gives us, it's scary. I'm scared. And the question is, are we ready, truly ready? When we think about all the implications, are we ready to die like Jesus? Peter the leader of Jesus' disciples, was right there with us. He was one of the people who Jesus was talking to in the passage from last week when he talked about death. And Peter was no doubt grappling with this same question that we are today. I mean, Jesus telling him that this is is what was required of him must have been traumatic. He wasn't expecting this. Maybe some of us weren't expecting this kind of radical call. He's processing, he's reflecting, he's asking that question. That's what we want to do today. Am I ready to die like Jesus? Him and the disciples are asking this question we pick up in Matthew chapter 17 this morning. And before we get into the story, it's important to remember that we've seen throughout the book of Matthew that Jesus and his divinity divinity, excuse me, knows what other people are thinking. 
He knows that the disciples are grappling with this question. He knows that we're grappling with this question today. So it's no coincidence that what happens next happens next. This passage is put here right after this, this other passage that Jesus talks about death for a reason. And we're going to see today that there's three truths in this text that will help us to be ready to die like Jesus. Three truths that will help us to be ready to die to ourselves like Jesus. So let's look at the text together, starting in verses 1 through 5. What's going to happen here is Jesus is going to take his inner circle, three disciples only, to a private place. This is what you would call an executive session. He's going to share some confidential, some crucial, uh, sensitive information. And only the very top level of leadership can be present to hear it. So he's taking these three disciples. And then something wild happens. And the disciples don't even know how to respond or what's happening. So let's read this text. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. It's Carrie Lynn read for us. I'll read it again. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. what's going on? Uh, This is crazy stuff. What's happening? Let's look at this from Peter's perspective to understand. Okay, Peter with his buddies James and John follows Jesus up this high mountain. Jesus doesn't explain to them where they're going or why they're going this, doing this climb. He's slipping on rocks as, as they go up. His side is aching from fatigue. He realizes he didn't bring a bottle of water. He's thinking that Jesus better have something really important to say to us. And they get to a level place near the top, and Jesus stops. He turns and he faces them. But he doesn't say anything, just looks at them. Then, without any warning, he's transformed, transfigured. Peter, blinded by a sudden blazing light shields his eyes. Eventually, it recovers enough to take one peek just to see that the light is coming from Jesus, and then he's blinded again. The light's coming from his face. He wants to look, but the light is at least as bright as the sun. And wait a minute. He realizes, you know, in the Old Testament, Moses went up a mountain And the next time he was seen, his face was shining like the sun because he had seen God. But then he thinks that it didn't say in Exodus that Moses' clothes, his whole appearance was bright like Jesus's. 
And as he wonders about this difference, Moses himself and the great prophet Elijah appear suddenly, just talking nonchalantly with Jesus like they're old friends. Wow, Peter's thinking, my Jesus is as great as Moses and Elijah. Thinking that he needs to say something, but not really sure what, Peter pipes up as best as he can with his eyes uh, still shielded. Jesus, Mr. Elijah, Mr. Moses, I'm really glad we're all here. Doesn't really know what he's talking about. If, If you want, we can build some shelters for the three of you, and maybe we can all stay longer and and talk. But right then, a huge cloud blots out the sky with a noise like a whirlwind. Peter, covering his ears now, his hair being whipped around his face, somehow hears perfectly clearly the most terrifyingly beautiful and strong voice he's ever heard proclaim, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him. Now, of course, the voice from the cloud is God the Father's, the cloud being how God shows up so many times throughout the Old Testament. And the Son he speaks of is, of of course, Jesus, God the Son. So why does this happen? Well, remember how Peter is wondering if he's ready to give up everything for Jesus? How we're wondering the same thing. Here, God answers Peter's questions and our questions not by dismissing him, not by condemning him for grappling with this question, not even by reasoning with him. But what does he do? God reveals himself to our hearts. He shows himself to us. And in these five verses, he reveals to us that he's more powerful than you can imagine. He is more powerful than you can imagine. Jesus is not simply a moral teacher whose thoughts on how to live will help you to lead a better life. Jesus is not simply a religious figure sitting on a cloud somewhere whose name we pray at the, or at, we say his name at the end of prayers. He is God the Son, and it is ultimately he who is in control of everything. There is nothing in this universe that has a hope of stopping his plans for those who put their faith in him. There is nothing in the cosmos that has the strength to tear us away from his love. If he calls you to die to yourself and promises that true life is waiting on the other side, you can know that his promises never fail. He's more powerful then you can imagine, listen to him. Listen and trust his call. But not only is Jesus more powerful than you can imagine, but the second truth that will help us be ready to die like Jesus is that he's also more understanding than you can know. He's more understanding than you can know. This past week, I finally watched The Italian Job, Uh, the newer version with Mark Wahlberg. Sorry that I'm late. If you haven't seen it, it follows a team of professional robbers trying to steal from another professional thief. It's a basic plot line. And though I don't condone high-level robbery operations, or really any other kind of robbery, uh, I was impressed throughout the movie 
with the number of times where the heist looked like it was going to fail. They were going to get caught. They weren't going to be able to get into somewhere where they needed to get into. And, and usually in movies or stories of whatever kind, there's, when there's a situation that looks bad for the protagonist, if they're saved, it's usually something unexpected that they didn't expect and just happens to happen and it's fortunate and they're able to escape or survive or whatever it is. But in the Italian job, what saves the protagonist over and over is not something out of left field, but something that was a part of the plan all along, that was arranged beforehand so perfectly that it would kick in at just the right moment. And even when it's, there's some tense situations toward the end of the movie, I found myself beginning to trust these characters. They, they're going to be fine. They're, it's going to work out. Nothing's going to surprise them. They have all their angles covered. We trust people who have thought things through, don't we? Who understand what is happening and where things are going, who aren't surprised by anything that occurs. We, we look for this in our leaders, especially when we are in tense or frightening circumstances. Like, say, if Jesus calls you to die and says that that's the way to true life. We need to be sure that He has a plan, that He understands what is going to happen to us, that nothing will surprise Him if we're going to take up our cross and die like Him. And this is what the disciples are wondering a little further on in our passage in verses 9 through 13. They're literally coming back down to earth from a mountaintop experience, and now they have questions. The great revelation of the glory and power of Jesus is over, and now they're back to the mundane. Tomorrow is Monday. They're back to normal. They need, as do we, to know if Jesus is trustworthy, especially when we're in the midst of life without great revelations of God's presence, without great spiritual experiences. We need to know if He has a plan that doesn't have holes in it. We need to know that he has thought through every contingency. So when he instructs them not to tell anyone yet what they have seen on the mountain, and by the way, he tells them not to tell anyone because his plan is to die before his glory is known and before people worship him, because if people are worshiping you, they tend not to murder you. So he tells them not to tell anyone. His plan is to die. And as he returns to the unpleasant subject of his death, they begin wondering again once more if, if they are ready to die like him. Maybe I was ready when I was up there with this great spiritual experience, but now I'm down here in real life. Am I ready to die like Jesus? And so they ask some questions because they want to make sure that if they're going to lay it all on the line, that Jesus' plan is foolproof. They want to understand everything that doesn't make immediate sense before fully putting their lives in danger. Let's read verses 9 and 10. It says this, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Elijah the prophet, who is one of the Old Testament heroes who showed up just a few verses before, was expected by the Jewish people to return to Israel and restore all things before the Messiah came. The Messiah was going to have such power and authority that if he showed up and there was sin among God's people, there were going to be some serious consequences. Elijah was expected to return and clean up the mess before dad came home. And you can see this in the last couple of verses in the Old Testament. We're really close to it, so turn with me to Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. It's the book right before Matthew. We're going to read Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. That's on page 803 in your pew Bibles. This is written 400 years before the book of Matthew is written. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says this, Behold, it's God speaking, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." The disciples have read these verses, and they're wondering if Jesus has read these verses. Does he realize, does he understand that part of the plan is for Elijah to return before the Messiah does anything? Where has Elijah been? We just saw him on the mountain, but now he disappeared. Where'd he go? Why isn't he doing anything? And Jesus responds by saying, Elijah already showed up, sillies paraphrase. He came, Jesus says, and was rejected and was killed, just like what's going to happen to me. Remember John the Baptist? That crazy wilderness guy who preached repentance and baptized people in the desert and restored all those who would be restored to prepare the way for me to come along? Who was getting Israel ready for my entrance? And who was ultimately killed for being so radical? He came in the spirit of Elijah. He did Elijah's work. Everything is going according to plan. Even my death in a few months will happen according to plan. We have the same need as the disciples, don't we? We ask the same kinds of questions. God, why is there suffering in the world? Why is my body not healing? Why don't you just show yourself to everyone so we we don't have to worry about people believing what they can't see? Can't you do that? Do you understand, Lord? We ask these questions not primarily because we're intellectually curious, right? We ask these questions because we want to know if he understands, if he can be trusted. If he's going to ask us to die to ourselves, we better be able to trust him. And those questions that we ask are valid questions. And I think there are valid answers to them. But for today, let me ask this question of us. 
if the gruesome torture and death of God's beloved Son didn't surprise him, do we think any other suffering can? If Jesus understood all the implications of his own death well before it happened, do we think that our suffering or pain can fluster him? Yes, God hates when his children suffer or are in pain. Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. But as we trust him and die to ourselves, the one who is Savior by means of his crucifixion, he's using every prick of pain that we feel, every drop of blood around the world, every millisecond of heartache that we experience as part of his perfect plan to draw us to himself in eternal joy. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, how the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and inscrutable His ways. He is more understanding than you can know. You can trust one like this, even if that trusting means dying to self. He's more powerful than you can imagine. He's more understanding than you can know. And the final truth about Jesus that gears us up to be ready to die like Him is that He is more caring than you can hope. He is more caring than you can possibly hope. It's reported that Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite song was the gospel tune, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. He often requested it in church services and civil rights meetings. And it was the song he asked to be sung by Mahalia Jackson at his funeral, which she did. It was also the song that in the movie Selma, he requested for Mahalia Jackson to sing to him right then and there over the phone in the wee hours of the morning as he got ready to lay his life on the line the next day. Listen to the lyrics of the main chorus. I won't sing it for you or else you really would be ready to die. Um, but these are the words of someone who is getting ready to die to themselves. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm alone. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Precious Lord, take my hand lead me home. If we are to be ready to die like Jesus, to sacrificially give up our own will in our own way and give in to Jesus' will in His way, to die to ourselves, to follow Jesus with the willingness to suffer unlimited sacrifice, then what we need is not only a vision of the awesome power that Jesus yields, not only to listen to his words of perfect understanding, but we need to feel his caring touch. Let's return to verses 6 through 8 in Matthew 17. If you remember, the glorious vision of Moses and Jesus and Elijah occurs, then God the Father himself shows up in the cloud and his voice thunders. And this is all the stuff of legends. And Peter, covering his ears and straining to shut his eyes tighter, now oblivious to everything else around him, falls 
to his face in absolute terror. He has heard the voice of the one whose, o- whose holy presence has overwhelmed and killed men in the past. He's a goner, he's thinking. But next, all grows quiet. The cloud's presence, Peter can feel, is gone. Yet he dare not open his eyes or lift his head for fear that he might be mistaken. Now look at verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus, with all the power and understanding and glory in the world, does not stay at a distance, expecting and waiting for you to worship him, coldly showing off his magnificence. No, instead, he approaches his disciples, he approaches us, groveling on the ground, confused out of their wits, having no idea what's going to happen next. He approaches them, he bends down to them on the ground, and he touches them. You might picture yourself as the fourth person, flat on your face from terror, right next to Peter, James, and John. You might have accidentally swallowed some dirt. You might be confused as to who this Jesus really is. Your back might be strained from bending over this whole time, all while worried about what it could possibly mean for you to die to yourself. But before you do anything, before you take any next steps, you feel Jesus' hand on your shoulder. Rise. Do not fear. Get up. You don't have to worry. Looking up, you see Jesus only, the text says. Jesus only, who has called you to die like him. Jesus, all of whose power and understanding is lovingly bent toward your good. Jesus, who cares for you more than you can hope. Jesus only. He is the one who approaches and touches and tells you to rise. He is the one who shed his glory and approached us in the form of a human child born out of wedlock in squalor, who approaches so close to us that he took our place on the cross so that we might be forgiven of our sins, who not only touches but embraces all those who place their faith in him, who will take your hand and lead you home as you die to yourself, who rose on the third day and calls us who die to ourselves to rise to new life with him, rise to new life that looks just like this transfiguration event in Matthew 17, who nowhere along the way will leave you or forsake you. He calls you to die, and this is key, not just like him, but with him, as he walks with you all along the way, with resurrected, transformed life with him promised for you. He is more powerful than you can imagine. He is more understanding than you can know. He's more caring than you can hope. And brothers and sisters, with all of this in mind and with Jesus' call to die to ourselves in mind, 
most important statement of the day is this. It's safe to die with Jesus. If you take one thing away from today, it's this. It is safe to die with Jesus. So let's return to the question that Bill ended with last week. As you rest in the safety of Jesus' forgiveness of your sins, as you rest in His constant presence and His promise of resurrected life, and maybe if you don't know Jesus or embrace Him as your Savior, you see that that's promised for you, the question for you is, where do you need to die? What in your life do you need to give up? What do you need to be willing to lose? How is God calling you to die to yourself? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and pastor who was executed by the Nazis at the end of World War II because he was actively resisting their rule. He had the chance to flee the country but decided not to. And his death was described by an eyewitness this way. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Right before that, Bonhoeffer reportedly said to his friend, who is also in prison with him, as he was being taken to the gallows, he said, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. It's safe to die with Jesus. How is he calling you to do just that? There are three commands in this passage, and we'll end with them. They're very short. Listen to him. Rise and have no fear. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the safety that we have in you. Even as you call us to die to ourselves, to give up our own will and way and to give in to your will and way. We thank you for the safety that we have in you, the promise of eternal life that we have in you, that we can even experience now as we place our faith in you, God. I ask, Lord, that you would make clear to every one of us how you are calling us to die to ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with love, that we would be ready to die like you and with you. We thank you for dying for us, Lord, out of love and for forgiving us of our sins, Lord. We thank you for being so good. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would lead us. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.